Hello, and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. We've assembled a list of hundreds of film scores that are considered worth talking about, and with the help of our listeners, we've been assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us Basil Polidurus's score to the 1982 action fantasy adventure Conan the Barbarian. So, Max Weinberg and the Max Weinberg 7 were the band for the first part of the show, and then Jimmy Vivino took over. <laughs> Nothing. John, would you like me to give the actual credits to this movie? Oh, is that, is that, that's not what we're talking about? No, it's not. All right, sorry, fine. Yes, Conan the Barbarian was written by John Milius and Oliver Stone, based on the character and the short stories of Robert E. Howard. Produced by Buzz Feitchens and Raffaella De Laurentiis for her father, Dino De Laurentiis. And it was directed by John Milius. Andy, give us a sense of Conan the Barbarian. In a time before real time, <laughs> uh, when men have huge muscles and swords, and women have huge muscles and swords, uh, fights happen. <laughs> The main woman with a big sword in the movie is played by Sandal Bergman. Of course, the man with big muscles and big swords, Conan the Barbarian, is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Also starring James Earl Jones as the evil Falsa Doom. And for some reason, Max von Sydow as the one seen having King Osric. He said it's because one of his kids uh, liked Conan the Barbarian is why. I guess that's a good reason. So what happens in Conan the Barbarian? Well, we see young Conan the Sumerian witness the death of both his parents at the hands of the evil Falsa Doom, and then grow to incredible strength and barbarity and set out on a journey of revenge and discovery and mystery and magic and snakes and so forth. <laughs> good enough? I am going to say that is more than good enough. <laughs> So, John, remember how when we started this podcast, we were going down the list that the American Film Institute, the AFI, put together of their top 25 film scores of all time? Oh, yeah, that does sound vaguely familiar. And a lot of that was about us checking our own personal tastes and reactions against <laughs> the received wisdom of the AFI. And the AFI sort of, yeah. I can't, I just, I just can't wait to see where this goes. I mean, this is great. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. And the AFI you know, as we kept having to engage with, mm -hmm. had a certain outlook, a little old-fashioned, self-involved Hollywood outlook that mm -hmm. we all know if we've ever watched an Oscars ceremony, right? Sure. It's just this kind of mainstream, down-the-middle notion of movie history that, you know, Gone with the Wind is, of course, one of the great scores of all time because, of course it is. Because of movies. Right. That uh, <laughs> The Pink Panther is one of the great scores <laughs> of all time because, you know, it's iconic. Who doesn't know and love and then we ended that, and we went on to our open-ended season two of this show, out of the AFI list, and we are engaging with different kinds of stories about what movies are important. Different strains of consensus, different communities hmm. are speaking to us through these selections, right? That's a good way of putting it, yes. So here's Conan the Barbarian, a movie <laughs> that I don't think either of us had any 
history with, right? You had not seen it. I am willing to admit, yes, that I had no experience with this movie or its music. I apparently am ashamed to admit. I forgive you. Thank you. But who are you really expressing that shame to? Not the AFI, right? No, I am, I am explicitly addressing all of our wonderful listeners who voted for this to be the score that we talked about on this episode. Right. But this wasn't in our bucket because the listeners put it there. The system is. Mm-hmm. We gathered this from various sources that purport in their various ways to have collected the consensus uh, or to have taken some historical perspective. Yeah, while I was watching this, I felt like, all right, I don't have the AFI's voice in my ear. I have the voice of the aficionados, the fans, saying stuff like you see all over the internet, like, ah, Conan the Barbarian, one of the most glorious treasures in the film music literature, etc., etc., I was just very aware of being on different turf with this movie in terms of taste. Whose taste and what taste. Mm -hmm. And, all right, look, you seem to be waiting for me to say what I thought. Here's what I thought. (laughs) I had absolutely no history with this. You know how it is. I had every reason to think that its charms would be pretty much inaccessible to me because I don't have a nostalgic relationship to it. I don't have a particular temperamental uh, affinity for this kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't have this in my past. It, it doesn't mean anything to me. And to my surprise, I kind of get it. I kind of get why people are so enthusiastic about it, which is not entirely to say that I joined their number, but yeah, I felt the charm. It was kind of a treat. It was kind of strange to me just how entertaining I found it, despite literally everything about it. (laughs) Um, So I think I get it, but I say that knowing that uh, I can't get it because I'm not one of the true faithful. I'm really glad to hear you say that, not necessarily because (laughs) I was totally won over to it myself, coming to it from the exact same position that you're describing. I don't know if I would say that I was utterly charmed by it, but I was at least made open to someone being charmed by it. I I did feel somewhat similarly that I knew this was going to be somewhat ridiculous, you know, some degree of campiness, some degree of low-rent schlock chic, and it certainly was that. It's not like good, but it's not bad, you know? Yeah. (laughs) It's not bad. And as for the music, I, I mean, it really does make a case for itself. It was easy for me to hear this music resonating with a lot of other music that I know from a lot of different contexts that came after this. That came after it, Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh. It's easy for me to feel the influence of this in so many things. I do want to give credit to the combined effect of this music with this movie of, yeah, it it did something. It got something done here. Yeah. It wasn't even that long into the movie where I thought, oh, I see. Sure. (laughs) This is why people said we had to talk about this, because it's doing this. Can, can I call out the moment pretty early on in the movie that literally made me laugh out loud in the music? The music did something, and I laughed out loud, sitting by myself watching the movie, and thought, okay, I see, I see, <laughs> I see what's happening here. Okay, fine, now I get it. Yeah, I don't know where there would be a laugh. Tell me where. It's not a joke. It's not, it's not a laugh moment. It's just an unexpected musical move that my reaction was just to laugh at it. In fact, I'll, I'll appreciate you helping me unpack exactly why I found this funny. Okay, so we hear the opening credits music. You know, great. I get it. This is the opening credits to this movie. Big time. Hardcore. Then music 
drops down a little bit. It's a little less intense for the scene where uh, Conan, as a kid, is being told the legend by his father. Fire and wind come from the sky, from the gods of the sky. But Krum is your god. Krum, and he lives in the earth. What did you think of that kid, by the way? Once uh, he was a kid? Did you think he was especially good, bad? No, nah, I mean, he doesn't, he barely does anything. Like, he just stands there and has his hair that long. Yeah. Uh, Want to feel old, though? That kid is now the governor of California. Uh, <laughs> Okay, anyway, so the kid's father's talking to him, and we get playing with the same material, the same world of uh, harmonic language, but calm down a little. And then, oh, now there's a fanfare. Horn calls, we see some guys riding horses. We don't know who or why yet. And then we cut to a peaceful village, uh, old-timey, you know, medieval or uh, what's the what, what? John? I'm going to need you to be less specific. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to say, what's the time period supposed to be? John, this takes place after the oceans drank Atlantis, oh. but before the rise of the sons of Arius. Thank you. Yes. Oh, oh, you must mean you must mean the Hyborian Age. Yes, of course. The <laughs> age to which I refer is the Hyborian. The Age of Hybor. Okay. Uh, peaceful Hyborian. You know. Hunter-gatherer nomad people. They're supposed to be like on the Russian steppes. Sure. They're Sumerians. Uh, yeah, but that sounds like you're saying Sumerians and you're not. You're saying C-I-M-M-E-R. Yes, which I believe is stolen from the actual name of uh, Caucasian people. Okay. Yeah, well, this is that. They're wearing like big furry boots and helmets, I guess. There's fur. Oh, there's fur. There's animal skins uh, about. Okay, so there's the peaceful village of them, and the kid is ice fishing, and they're preparing their uh, harvest, something, and oh, then, oh no, here come raiders. Raiders are coming to get them and to raid this peaceful village. Chorus, and it's big and meaty, the music is, and it wants to feel primitive, you know. Okay, so a few shots of this, and then is a cut to some horses, and this is when I laughed. I'm sorry, it's not going to be funny to anybody else. I hope I haven't built it up too much, but all of a sudden there's a circle of fifths in the music, with trumpets. There's this sequence of chords where these chords all kind of point to one another in a circle and lead one to the next and it creates this sequence where you hear the same musical phrase go from this chord to this chord and then it goes a step down and then we're on the next chord down the sequence the staircase of chords it's a staircase it's a marble run it's a progression that needs to go from one point to another point why did this make me laugh, Andy? <laughs> it was unexpected to me in a way that made me laugh. Was it a laugh of delight at some level? I guess so, yeah. It really communicated to me that, oh, the music's just going to go. Like, the <laughs> mechanics here are intrinsic to the music, not to the visual, not to the action, right? The music throughout this action sequence and many others in the movie delights in kind of giving no quarter to what is happening on screen. Like, I think it really wants to have a classical feel to it that 
there is this piece of music and it's going to generate itself according to its rules. Cause like once you start this sequence, you've already accounted for, you know, a whole eight bars of material that have to follow. It was just a striking moment in this context of big drums and yelling choir and primitive sounds. And then also do, 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 do the music's got to go from here to here, here to here, here to here, here. I don't it just, uh... I think I'm with you. You're making it sound a little bit like the thing that the music does at that point is somehow comically inapt. No, I didn't feel it that way at all. No, I don't think it's inapt, but it just snapped me into a different appreciation. Yes. I just felt like, oh, I see. Okay, the music's going. Great, great. There it goes. The circle of fifths, I didn't see coming. Like a hold my beer, I'm going to go through all of these chords kind of a move coming from the music. Yeah, it was around there that I felt like, yeah, I get this. And it was the same feeling. It didn't make me laugh, but my theory about why it made you laugh yeah. would be, uh, you know, deep theory of humor that it's, uh, you experience laughter when you're relieved of some obligation to uh, rational order and you're just returned to some immediate sensation that you're having and you feel like, hmm. oh yeah, I was having that sensation. Whew, yeah. And you laugh a little bit and that there's some kind of uh, permission to just be having a musical experience. I think in, yeah, yeah. in prior conversations, I've said that, you know, when I like the music more than the movie, I try my best to have the musical experience and let the movie uh, come along for the ride. Because if I can, that's such a great feeling. It's so gratifying to have the values of the music be the values of the experience. And then, yeah, there's pictures that go with it. A lot of movies, they just resist it. The movie fights for your attention and the music tries to do justice to what the movie is doing. And here, with clarity of purpose from early on, yeah, especially in that moment. I just would never have thought to do that. Like, it conveys a song feeling. That's, like, not how action scoring usually works. Because it thinks that the actions are more important than the feeling. And this movie knows down to its bones that the feeling is the only important thing. Yeah, and sure enough, this action, quote-unquote, music gets played through a bunch of stuff. And I, I was always delighted when that Circle of Fifths came back. I let it tell me, yep, here they go. Here it all goes. I think for me, the moment when that chord sequence gelled the best for me was the big fight later in the movie when they crash in on James Earl Jones's orgy and uh, beat everybody up. And yeah, that sequence gave me the feeling when these chords go around this circle. Like, oh yeah, of course, Arnold uh, knocking all these guys with, uh, with his big sword. This follows as readily as the slinky going down the staircase that is happening in the music. Because that music means... Now, you can find people saying that this is a thematic score with themes that correspond to things and that that's a theme that corresponds to the forces of Felsa Doom. But I dare say you're right. That music means it's all happening. Yeah. And then right after that, in that same fight sequence, when they reprise the uh, opening title music... That's true. You know what it means... It's all happening. (laughs) Most of the music in this movie means it's happening. It's happening right now in front of you. I understand why people feel passionate about it. There's something so primary and childlike about that Mm. frame of listening that this is all happening for big, 
simple reasons and everything else is secondary, which is how this movie gets away with everything. <laughs> I felt like, you know, you said it's like a song. I think that I read that John Milius used the word opera in trying to mm. explain to Basil Polidorus what he wanted out of the music. He wanted the whole movie to have the feeling of an opera, but in opera they're singing, I thought it's sort of like a ballet. It's like everything they're doing is humans just trying to approximate all of the feelings that the music is giving you. As in opera or ballet or any sort of staged to classical music performance, you forgive all kinds of infelicities of the specifics of it because you know that the music is the truth. Yeah, so coming to this movie, you know, later in life with the skeptical eye of somebody who has to talk about it on a podcast, Yes, some of the time I was delighted to overlook infelicities of production decision-making and, uh, you know, film and music synchronicity. And sometimes I was less delighted. <laughs> sometimes I bumped on the infelicities, which there certainly are. But it can't be denied that when it is in its element, you know, it's about that element, like you say, it's here it is. And that is very, very satisfying. And I, you know... Everything I hear about John Milius makes him sound like a weird dude. Well, do you know the... Yes. As far as I'm concerned, there's only one thing you need to hear about John Milius, which I, I take it you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> that he's the character played by John Goodman in The Big Lebowski? That is correct. That the Coen brothers-based Walter Sobchak, <laughs> John Goodman's character, who likes to go bowling, among other things, in The Big Lebowski on John Milius. And if you look up, if you look up pictures of John Milius... You can really see he looks just like he has that haircut. He has that facial hair. Yeah, he wears glasses like that. <laughs> so this is a movie made by that guy. Yeah. I did have that thought sometimes while watching it. The other tidbit of John Milius lore that I want to throw in here, that just to complete the full picture of what you need to be thinking about, about the person who made this movie, in addition to being an accomplished filmmaker, he was also instrumental in the creation of ultimate fighting championship martial arts sport, the UFC. And in fact, it was John Milius who came up with the idea of the octagon, the, the octagonal cage that they fight in in UFC fighting. He feels this stuff. Yeah. This is the man for the material. If you read about Robert Howard, who wrote this stuff, he too was a, a man of strange dreams. I guess we'll have to get into what the fantasy is here. But before even thinking about who John Milius is, I just want to say I feel like he deserves major credit for making the choice to make this movie feel like an opera. You know, we've had occasions on talking about other movies to invoke, oh, it's trying to be operatic. It's trying to have operatic scope. But he has actually edited this movie to the music in a way that really believes in making it a musical movie that way. Mm -hmm. You know, the music is so commanding and the editing often feels like it's deliberately staying in the shadow of the music. Interesting. That was the experience I had, that the visual was kind of saying, sure, look at this or look at that, whatever. <laughs> the main thing is, this is what's going on. Listen, listen to that music. Yeah, maybe you want to look over here. That's what's happening over there. That's what's happening over there. <laughs> and the music is dictating the size and the shape and the tempo of the experience. You know, when you started out this episode talking about uh, our history with the AFI list, 
one direction that I wondered if you were going to go is to call out something that we came across pretty early on in our journey through the AFI list because I couldn't help thinking about it the whole time. I mean, Ben-Hur, right? Is that what you're going to say? This is so clearly inspired by Ben-Hur and Miklos Rozier's music. And I know that, in fact, Paul Duris was a big fan of Roja, that he was one of his big sources of inspiration in becoming a film composer. Yeah, and I saw maybe in the same interview where he said that, he said that the first soundtrack he listened to over and over was The Robe by Alfred Newman, which is another biblical epic mm -hmm. with similar style. You can hear in the music throughout this movie that it's trying to get in the place where biblical epics put you. I remember us kind of trying to grasp for words along similar lines about Ben-Hur way back when. Like, the music is just saying, here it is. Look at this. You know, take it in and its epicness knows no bounds. Yeah, did you feel any difference between this and the actual biblical epics of 20 years earlier? You mean in the musical specifics? No, not in a technical musical level, but sort of the overall effect, the cinematic effect of this score. I feel a difference in both, actually. <laughs> the thought I had was when we were talking about Sergio Leone movies, mm -hmm. The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and we said what's said, that you know this is the movie made by someone who saw normal American westerns, and then they've been filtered through the sensibility of uh -huh, uh -huh. his particular artistic outlook, his particular life, his Italian you know aesthetic ideas. And this feels like a biblical epic that has been squeezed through some kid's <laughs> brain. Through Walter Subject's brain. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> this is what Walter Subject from The Big Lebowski sees when he sees a biblical epic. You know, he saw a biblical epic, plus, like, what else does this kid have? They have some, like, uh, bodybuilding magazines, obviously. <laughs> they have some uh, girly mags, as we say. And they have some, like, horror comics where weird magic stuff happens. Those things are all floating around in their head. And then it just it just comes out the other side looking like this. <laughs> That's what it felt like. Undeniably. But for Polidurus's part, I mean, there are cues here that if they weren't tempted with Ben-Hur, then he was, you know, taking Ben-Hur as the inspiration for what he should write. Like here, this big, you know, ancient times march for all of the uh, cult members tramping across the landscape in their robes to the mountain of power. I mean, this sounds right out of the Roman marches that Roger wrote for Ben-Hur. Just so we can hear them back to back, here's one of those Roman marches from Ben-Hur. And here's the Mountain of Power again. Yeah, almost to the point of ignoring what it's even depicting. This cult, the bad guys in this movie, is a snake cult led by James Earl Jones as a sort of hypnotist wizard cult leader. Shapeshifter? Shapeshifter, yeah, he can turn into a snake, obviously. <laughs> uh, he can also shoot snakes out of a bow, like arrows, which not everyone can do. 
this music sounds like you said, like the Roman Empire, all of the crashing cymbals. There's a ceremony and pomp of a sort on screen, but they're all hooded cultists, and the music doesn't convey anything that helps us understand their cultish nature. I agree. Yeah. And it's not a defense of it, but I think it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, I'll accept that. And, you know, the Wheel of Pain, this enormous mill thing that the kid is forced to trudge around for years and years until he turns into Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, this cue has to be inspired by the rowing from Ben-Hur, don't you think? Oh, that's interesting. I thought that the gladiatorial fights that he does, you know, a few scenes later, mm -hmm. did sound a bit like the rowing from Ben-Hur. A lot of things in this movie sounded like the rowing from Ben-Hur. Sure. The Wheel of Pain in my head sounded like the thing from the middle of uh, Rite of Spring, you know, I think the Spring Rounds movement. Sure, 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 sure. Well, I think it's pretty neatly a cross between the rowing in Ben-Hur and Rite of Spring. That's what Paul Duras wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, things sounding like other things, it's all derivative. The whole score and the whole movie, everything here. Like I said, it's other culture processed through a certain sensibility mm -hmm. and squeezed out in a lump. <laughs> but I did feel a difference between this and the biblical epics in, I guess, the spirit of all of that bigness felt much more guileless and sincere. Not that I was weighed down by insincerity, but you know, what we said about Ben-Hur, it's unavoidable. This is a studio, you know, swinging its sword around. This is a studio trying to show you how powerful they are in what they can produce and how much of it they can put on screen. And the music in Ben-Hur, in a lot of those movies, is sort of telling me to marvel at the movie. And I didn't feel that kind of vanity and self-regarding quality hmm. in this score. It felt like it was coming from people like Milius who, <laughs> you know, here's here's another thing about John Milius that you didn't mention mm -hmm. that he had in common with Basil Polidorus that they met in college. At USC, they were classmates with George Lucas. That's right, yeah. And they were surfer dudes. Yeah. They loved surfing. In fact, their first feature movie that they made together called Big Wednesday is a deeply felt surfing movie with very emotional music. Because surfers feel that way about surfing. Not to go too deep into a stereotype here, but I think that's the type of person surfers are. They want to feel things, dude. They want to get right to the simplest, biggest part of things. And I just feel like the people who made this movie were the people by and for whom this kind of fantasy existed in the first place. They felt it. And this music doesn't feel like it's trying to get me to say what a cool movie I saw. Hmm. It's just trying to get me to feel Conan feelings. And that felt almost purer than the music it was imitating. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I do feel that. Guileless is a good word. The music really is just kind of bounding at you in 
sincere excitement and licking your face like a big dumb golden retriever. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, big and dumb in the least judgmental sense. It's just simple, simple thoughts. Yeah, and I absolutely felt the charm in that and felt the sincerity for the music about the epic sweep and scope. I think some of the best music in this movie is towards the end. I think he really finds some wonderful feelings, big feelings about the funeral pyre. Aftermath of the climactic victory at the end. I think that stuff is my favorite in the movie. But I was surprised at some of the decisions, places where I was unsure why this archaic-sounding, you know, nondescript ancient times source music, apparently, was just happening, and it just keeps happening through scenes that does seem to ignore what's happening in the scenes in ways that struck me as weird in a few places. Like for this scene where they sneak into the snake tower place and disrupt this ritual ceremony. There's this music with, you know, you can tell it's archaic. It's nice. It gets that feeling across. Yeah, the music you hear in the movie for that scene is not, that's the one piece of non-Polidurus music that stayed in the final cut. That's actual medieval music. Aha. 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 I mean, I'll admit that I went pretty far into my prep for this show, believing that this was Polidurus' music here and that it was his decision to put it there. But yeah, this is actual medieval source music? Where'd they get it from? It's not a medieval recording. Oh, those are hard to come by. Uh, René Clemency playing the uh, Cantigas de Santa Maria, 13th century Spanish music, on a VL. When I thought it was by Polidurus, I thought, wow, he's not doing pseudo-archaic, pseudo-medieval music like Hollywood does. This sounds like he listened to some actual medieval music and imitated it. That's so cool because it's so much more peaceful and trance-like than Hollywood's impression of medieval music. And then I learned, oh, that's because it is actually just borrowed medieval music. But I thought it had a really cool effect. I guess you didn't like it. I I was uh, of two minds about it. In some moments, I did think it had an interesting effect. Trance-like is right. I mean, that really is what it gets across, that this cult, this ritual, is putting across some sort of a trance that all these women are in, that there's some seductive pull to it, that's the force that they're up against, and just having it play through and through and through while they're sneaking in, while they're fighting a giant snake and stabbing it through the head. While all this other stuff is happening, the insistence on it, yeah, does give a lot of credence to the trance effect and the importance of the ritual that's happening in the next room. But I think it does miss some tricks by doing that. Like, I definitely wanted something to help me with fighting the snake. 
I also think it misses a big opportunity when Arnold sees the symbol with the two snake heads facing each other that he has been chasing because it's Thulsa Doom's sigil that he remembers from when he killed his parents. And he sees it on the wall of this snake chamber. And then you see flashbacks to him seeing it when he was a kid in the beginning of the movie. You gotta give me some music about that. I definitely felt that is a lacking. So I had an experience with this that felt valuable to me. And I thought, I bet this is what people like about it. But I don't know, maybe it's just uh, eccentric to me. But I thought that that sequence, and then the other sequence later we'll talk about that has sort of a similar take on how to play things, had an amazing sort of detaching effect in relation to the movie. I felt like it was a way of scoring fantasy that felt like it had something to it. Yeah, this is a fantasy movie, and it's, I think, remarkably clear-headed in all its dumbness that (laughs) fantasy is the objective. You know, I'm not a big fantasy buff. I don't really... Arnold Schwarzenegger is the big fantasy buff. He is certainly big and buff. Um, But I respond to it at least somewhat. I have some feeling for it that, like, when you're reading a fantasy novel, it has a special feeling of something like being unhooked inside your head something releases and you're just sort of floating around without gravity without the gravity of things necessarily having to be anything you know dream imagery is free to be as dreamy as the author chooses for it to be and if they want to bring in facts about history and psychological intricacies they can but there's no obligation to because everything is loose and in this floaty space and that's sort of this like childhood way of reading or of experiencing something and this scene i felt like it knows about that this feels like being a kid and just being in the zone Mm. and you're turning the pages of your comic book and oh now they're sneaking into the snake cult and oh now he's getting the jewel oh now he's fighting the snake but what are you feeling while all of that is happening you're just in the zone something is unhooked and it's keeping you there and i thought this is getting something right about what the movie is doing Like I said, I'm not deaf to that experience. I had something of that. I just wanted to temper it a little bit with uh, the stuff that I want. But I think my antenna were up to be critical of it because of some earlier spots in the movie where stuff just plays through things and doesn't respond to it in ways that I didn't quite feel exactly right about. Like the scene where uh, where he's setting out on his travels and he gets seduced by a witch, I guess. And there's just this drum, drum beats going through the whole scene. Yeah. Drums come in before he goes into her cottage. Then we cut to inside of her cottage and all of a sudden she's doing this creepy, sexy, slinking crawl around and the same drums are going and then they get together and it's a love scene. I don't know if it's a love scene, John. Okay, well. But it's a naked scene. Yeah, there's a bunch of those. She says that the information he wants has a price, and the price is for him to have sex with her. And then she turns into a monster, her eyes go weird, and then they start fighting, and then... He throws her in the fire, and then she turns into fire. And only then do the drums stop, but no bass solo. But yeah, I, I mean, this kind of stuff... 
I'm sorry I am sensitive to it when the music is just wallpapered through a scene that has twists and turns in it. Why is it the same wallpaper? See, I had so much the opposite reaction to that scene with the snake tower. At the very end of the scene, it switches over to Polidurus's actual, you know, score to picture music. It's uh, jump, 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 jump to represent action. And I thought, oh, yeah, he has his limitations as a movie composer. And now that he's trying to score the movie I'm seeing, I'm so aware of his limitations, certainly the movie's limitations, the silliness of all of it. Like, you've just focused my attention on all of these details that, ooh, these are not your strong suit. Your strong suit was the trance. Interesting. I mean, that's the effect of having a trance broken then. That's perhaps an argument for not setting up such a long trance in the first place, is that when you break that trance, then you're going to go, oh, what, what's even, what am I looking at? Yeah, well, this is a movie that should know to never, never break the trance. <laughs> yeah, I was so thankful during the witch sex fire scene that the music wasn't playing, you know, witch and then sex and then fire. Good Lord, its best bet was to be some drums. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. See, this is a take that I am also sympathetic to, which sounds like it is at odds with the takes that we started out with, you know, about how, boy, this is really putting you in the right mood and how powerful this is. You're saying that it's better to just have wallpaper going through some of this stuff because Paul Duras isn't up to actually scoring it the way it should be scored? Uh, Well... I wouldn't use the word wallpaper for any of this because we don't need to constantly be so mean to wallpaper. Wallpaper can be beautiful. (laughs) And when you're a kid, you can stare at the wallpaper until you start having weird thoughts. Okay. All right. I guess that's... Again, I'm... (laughs) willing to go along with this we've talked a zillion times on this show about you know the art being the combination and i feel like this is not a particularly good movie and not (laughs) really particularly good music by any standard assessment but it is a really strong combination I, i think i agree i think i'm with you on that i think that his strength here is calling on all of this music that he's heard all of these musical feelings and attaching them to this perfect object for them, a story that's not quite a story about a character who's not quite a character in a time that's not quite a time. Yeah, I think I agree. I do feel that way. But from you saying that, I bet that you're going to be more sympathetic to the next big set-piece action scene that we should talk about that just plasters the same track of apparent archaic, maybe source music, over a bunch of on-screen action, and that's this orgy presided over by James Earl Jones turning into a snake as our heroes are sneaking in to kill everybody. Mm-hmm. You didn't mention the soup with body parts in it. Oh, there's a soup with uh, with hands and heads and stuff in it. It's like a big cauldron of... Uh, it looks like the broth looks like... Uh, oop, like what you make... Oob like, yeah. yeah. Somebody didn't make a good roux there. It's a very watery roux. On the commentary, John Milia says it's split pea in hand. So yeah, this is the music that's playing through a lot of stuff happening, through Sandal Bergman sneaking in and climbing over stuff, and Arnold Schwarzenegger creeping up behind people and getting ready to hit him. And the other guy, 
it's clearly meant to be the music for the orgy. Like, it's what they're listening to, and they're listening to Bolero, I guess? I think what they're listening to is the uh, middle section of Jupiter from the planets by Holst. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's a good sound alike. That's a good sound alike. My sound alike is Ravel's Bolero, which here it is. So if you cross this with that, I guess you get what Polidurus wrote here. You know, a third feeder, I did think, oh, it's like the standard go-to for orgies, which is the Pelopsian dances by Borodin. Do you know this? This is like, quote, orgy clip. Oh, right, right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. That's in there, too. I guess I haven't been to enough orgies. I haven't (laughs) made that association myself. Oh, yeah. They play it at all the orgies. Okay. This plays and plays. You know, there are all these bodies lying on top of each other, people stirring the body part soup. Oh, yeah, there's also James Earl Jones's face getting, like, squished and stretched and uh, look over there, now he's a snake. Yeah, terrifying, right? I guess the answer is no. I mean, this brought me back to how movies were scary to me as a kid. Okay. This whole sequence, and I think that was the objective. Okay. And if not, it's just a thing that kept happening in the 80s, probably because of carelessness, but it did have an effect. And in this case, I thought, oh, it seems deliberate because, yeah, they're really sticking to this. That feeling of being a kid and being kind of hypnotized by something. And then, oh my god, what is that over there? The movie's not helping me figure it out. It's just showing it to me. There seems to be a head floating up in that soup now. The guy's face is stretching. And the music is just like... This is your problem, kid. Good luck. (laughs) And that, I think, is the objective there is supposed to be. We're still having that. I think that was supposed to be the objective. Like, what is an orgy to the people making this movie? Oh, it's a thing of, like, it's fascinating and enticing and terrifying. And, you know, you're drawn to it's magnetic and scary. You know, like any scene where someone has sex and then the person they're having sex with turns into a monster in the middle of it. Like, this is expressing some kinds of pushes and pulls in their psyche. You know, like, what does the guy say? Supatai says, this must be paradise or something, right? (laughs) Yeah. They're like kids looking at this and being scarred by it and fascinated by it. And it just felt like it knew. Like, when his face starts to stretch, that really brought back the feelings. I got scared by things in movies as a kid, and they were always like that. That the music was against me, not with me. (laughs) It was doing its little dance. And then like, oh, I can cut to this horrifyingly unreal, like surreal body horror thing anytime I want. Oh, now I'm going to cut away. I'm not going to cut back yet. I've got two other things I want to show you. Oh, now here's his face stretching out. This is the trance in which these things, you know, just happen. Well, I I mean, we're talking about the same feeling, I guess. It's just a matter of whether you're an impressionable, scared kid, which I definitely was at some point in my life, or whether, you know, you're a jaded adult who is thinking about what music should be doing while you're watching a movie, which I was, I suppose, at the point in my life at which I was watching this for the first time. Oh, were you an adult last week? Apparently too much of one, because I had, I guess, more of my wits about me than you to think 
Why? Why? <laughs> I think that's clear. <laughs> you know, I'm watching this movie and I thought that's a weird thing happening to his face. Why doesn't the music know about what's happening to his face? The music is the point of view of horrible things, rather than of there being horrible. So this was why I was confused by it. I can't deny, as I've said again and again, I can't deny that there is an effectiveness to just putting your head down and playing through stuff and leaving the viewer to figure it out. And I'm totally willing to grant it credit for giving you the feeling of, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to help you with this kid, <laughs> giving you the feeling that the movie was calling you kid derisively. Oh, not derisively. Intimidatingly. You know, People get fascinated by the things that scare them. Okay. And this movie just seemed like it couldn't tear its eyes away from <laughs> a series of things. So I want to give it credit for conjuring that feeling in you of being horrified and mesmerized at the same time. Mesmerized, yeah. And there definitely is something to that there. I was surprised that Milius went along with this decision because... Isn't his whole thing, you know, isn't he a rugged individualist? He is an anti-authoritarian. This cult is the bad guy in the movie just because don't be in a cult. You know, be a lone hero mm -hmm. out on your own. This scene that should be about the heroes doing their heroing. And he's putting all the musical force behind the cult, behind the bad guys. Wouldn't he want, wouldn't Walter Sobchak want... To feel like, now they're sneaking up, do boo 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 isn't it so great that they're sneaking up and going to knock out the guard, do 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 Like, wouldn't he want energy and importance given to the individual actions of the heroes in opposition to this cultist, hypnotic, mesmerizing force? Like, maybe establish it, sure. But then I was surprised that I wasn't getting the hero's response to it also instantiated in the music. I think that is a superb point, but I don't think that you've picked apart a problem with the movie. I think you've pointed up a problem with the worldview. Wow. You know, there's a lot of uh, projection and... Yeah, maybe maybe people who think they're rugged individualists are actually those most enthrall to other things. Mm. I was thinking a little bit about the politics of this movie, if there are any, and certainly of John Milius. As I was watching this, especially coming off of the last thing I said on the last episode about The Incredibles, like, oh, The Incredibles <laughs> made me uneasy. Here we go with Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> and this didn't make me uneasy, even though, yeah, I think if you start picking apart what is believed in and what is fantasized about by its authors, <laughs> this is not the healthiest stuff. You know, my friend Michael helped me out with a lot of valuable background about John Milius and about the Conan mystique. Uh -huh. And he was telling me that a lot of the people who were fans of the Robert E. Howard stories were not happy with this movie movie because it's a different take on the character. In which direction? In the sense that he took this loner barbarian character and made it a vessel for all the stuff that he thought was cool in Southern California in the 70s, like, you know, samurai movies and surfing and sexy dancers. Yeah. I mean, it is legitimately a bloodthirsty movie and a movie obsessed with, you know, strength and muscles and swords. Sure. Fairly maladjusted <laughs> fantasies about sex and violence. But it's so forthright and has so directed it all into the music. You can take issue with it politically, morally, whatever, but the music is there always reminding you of very spontaneous human sentimentality out of which the the moral problem is arising. I feel like the music is direct access 
to the pre-philosophical impulses that drive people in these directions, and there's something sort of profound about that. Like, I do not endorse what, what this person believes in or what this movie, if you analyze it, believes in. But there's sort of an undeniability, like, oh yeah, people feel this way. And even I get what that feeling is when you play it in musical form like this. I get what feeling you're trying to express. And it's like you said, it's like a dog licking your face. Like, if you sat a dog down and asked it what its political opinions were, you might find that many of them are not good ones. <laughs> you know, dogs shouldn't be in charge of society and a dog's fantasies about how society should be are would be dangerous if put into effect. But <laughs> the impulse that matters, the emotional impulse that precedes them is sympathetic because it's sincere and real. And even someone with whom I probably differ on everything, <laughs> if they're being honest, I can't help but be like, all right, well, you're being honest. I hear you. I hear what you're trying to put out there. And yeah, The Incredibles made me queasy because Brad Bird seemed like he was trying to kind of hide some things in the corners of his movie. And this just feels like it's coming right up and being like, swords are amazing, right? <laughs> but have you ever thought about how actually people are more important than swords? Whoa. <laughs> it's just saying it. It's just working it out right there. So I didn't, uh, it didn't bother me. What didn't bother you? I, it didn't bother me that this was a movie about how chopping people's heads off makes you a fully realized person. Uh, yeah, that the world is a landscape to journey through with a sword and have sex and then fight some more people. <laughs> I have said when we've talked about Westerns, I don't know if Westerns are for me. And this is just like even more so in that direction. But a good Western, like when we talked about The Magnificent Seven, once you get the musical image, then the whole sense of the thing kind of is apparent through that. Yeah, and when Polydorus is right in the same pocket of isn't this awesome? No, really, isn't this awesome? Well, you know, you can't deny it that it's awesome. I mean, listen to this. The Anvil of Krom, which is the <laughs> soundtrack title of the cue for the opening credits. And then, yeah, as you said, gets played again a couple times, like during the end of the orgy fight. Hmm. This is like fire hose of awesome. It's a great drum rhythm. It's this odd rhythm that you can't deny the potency of it. And then this horn melody. I mean, my God. To listen to this, I feel like, you know, the guy in the Maxell ad having my hair blown back in my chair just with the force of these 24 French horns that he's got. I didn't know it was that many, but it is a powerful sound. Yeah, 24 French horns. Just for comparison, regular orchestra has, what, four French horns usually, right? And then, like, you know, when a composer writes for a big orchestra with a big horn section, like Mahler, Mahler symphonies have, what, six or eight horns in them, right? Eight is excessive, but yeah, it's sometimes. Right, like, but that's a big Mahler muscular brass sound yeah. when you have, oh my God, up to eight French horns. This is 24 French horns in unison doing this. Yeah, because 
Arnold Schwarzenegger has 24 French horns worth of muscles. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly the rationale for getting that many and for putting them there. And I totally agree with you that there's something inevitably compelling and sympathetic about the sincerity behind I want you to hear this melody on top of these drums with 24 French horns worth of awesomeness. And that is the commonality between the movie and the music and the combination thereof that is beloved. And this rhythm is really great. As soon as it starts chugging, I feel like, well, I'm going to want to watch this. <laughs> it manages to stay unpredictable until you've heard it quite a few times because it's, true. it's a long and slightly hard to track six beats. But then the next time it goes around, it's only five. And so the full 11 just takes a very long time to get through. I think he doesn't write it as six plus five. He breaks it down even smaller into like three plus four plus five. And then three plus four plus three. But it's just constantly, you know, is it gonna go bump, bump, bump now or is it just gonna do bump, bump? You don't really know, you're off balance. I feel like that in itself is a great way to get across this feeling of ancientness that's so ancient we're actually sort of, you know, don't get too comfortable mm -hmm. because you're in the ancient world now. This is from before. <laughs> this is from before they fully figured out how to count. Yeah, this is from before the effete imposition <laughs> of meter. You know, <laughs> real man, not polite. Crom not finish measure when you want. Crom finish measure when Crom wants. You're right. The rhythm is primordial. Yeah, which is why it hasn't quite found four yet. The lava is bubbling up from the earth. Right, it's from before the invention of the wheel, because a wheel, you know, that's in 414. It would just roll and roll. Where this is just rocks tumbling down from a volcano. Right. Yeah, my friend Michael was telling me that this is not an experience that I have, but that this track is a favorite among D&D &D dungeon masters to play to set the mood for the game. Yeah, I assume this whole movie yeah, is exactly. to play in the background to set the mood for your game. So there's this super-duper awesome drums and super-duper awesome 24 French horns melody. And then there's an interlude where some strings show up. Mm -hmm. Roja. Well, sure, it sounds like Roja. But I think it sounds like Roja pushed in a kind of popish direction. Do you agree with that? Yeah, say more. I think I do agree with that. I was trying to think about what exactly the move is here that's doing that, because these chords are so familiar to me. I've mentioned a few times in the past that, you know, I have a lot of experience playing piano for improv comedy and or things like improv comedy where I've got to accompany something with little preparation and, you know, having a bag of tricks of established tropes that I can pull out when I need to is key for me. These chords right away put me in mind of, oh yeah, well, this is what I would play for something that is epic, something that is big and sweeping and movie cinematic. And yeah, I know what those chords are. And I think there is a connection back through the archaic sounds that Roja pioneered for Ben-Hur and the other, you know, sword and sandal epics that he wrote for. 
Oh, I guess this is a sword and sandal epic of a different kind. Do they wear sandals? No, but there's an actress's named Sandal. <laughs> That's a good point. Well, sword and Bergman, I think, would be more polite. This is usually called sword and sorcery because right. if there's wizards, then you're in a different genre <laughs> than if there's Jesus. Closed-toed shoes are required, right? Because it's cold. They got furs on. Anyway, so as Roja and other people established, what makes things sound archaic? It's parallel fourths and fifths, right? Right. It's these kind of ancient times fanfare-ish sound of this open interval moving in parallel. Both notes of the interval move the same amount. This is a sound that is against the rules in lots of more recent music, and so it sounds ancient and archaic to hear it really at the forefront. You know, you hear this all the time as an establishment of old-time stuff. That was definitely running through Polidurus's head. And he uses that plenty here. Like, the music that comes right out of the main credits is, sure enough, some nice parallel fourths to tell us that we're in oldie-timey times. It essentially is against the rules in later music because of the effect it has of feeling a little harsh. And it's that harshness mm-hmm. that it's part of what's being conveyed here. This is a... Uh, rough-hewn time. Rough-hewn, yeah. It has some of that kind of primordial quality that we were saying that the rough-hewn rhythm does. Like, this is the equivalent of that before they figured out, you know, all about how to make a chord. You know, what the relationships between chords are. Yeah, smoother relationships, softer relationships between chords. So, yeah, these strict parallel motions have that roughness to them if it's just the open interval. If you make a full triad and move a triad in strict parallel. That softens it a little bit if you put the third in the middle of the fifth here. I'll play it a little bit. If you move these chords around, it's a little softer, but it still has that kind of rough-sounding, archaic feel. Yeah, it's somewhere in between. It's somewhere in between. Yeah. I mean, because there's power behind it, right? You know, when you when a rock musician is playing chords like that and just moving them up and down, they're called power chords. Mm-hmm. There's undeniable power behind just taking these blocks of stone and moving them up and down the keyboard. Okay, so what happens if you move your big power chord blocks of stone up and down, but instead of letting it be strict parallel, where every note moves the exact same distance... What if you now constrain it so that you are only going to play notes that are part of a given scale? Each note isn't moving exactly parallel. Sometimes it's moving, you know, give or take a half step so that the third goes from being a minor third to a major third. Well, if I play these chords that are next to each other, chords that are based on notes that are next to each other in the scale, and all of the notes I'm playing here are part of the same scale, like I'm in F minor and I go, you know, E flat, F minor, G minor, A flat major, you know, I'm changing between minor and major. So it's parallel, but it's not this strict, rough-hewn, archaic parallel. It's parallel that's been moderated with a little bit of a more modern musical concept, the scale. So if I'm playing around these chords, and then if I put a little bit of a noodly melody on top of that, if I just go from one thing to the next, and I'm playing these parallel chords with a little bit of noodly melody, well, there it is. Now I'm playing epic music. And I can churn this stuff out. I'm not to say that Paul Duris is only, you know, doing the same thing. But, like, this is a shorthand that gets 
percolated up to me as I'm sitting at the piano. Oh, okay, it goes here, it goes here. It's just like treading this water, but it's holy water. <laughs> just moving around. Okay, then I put in a little bit of a leap. Oh, a little bit of a leap, and then we come down, the same progression. And then if I wanted to get something really big happens, then I jump to a different key, and now I'm going up and down a different scale. You can just do this all day long, and I feel like so many of the moments in this score are these parallel chords. I wrote in my notes a lot of white key composing, because that's how I think of it. Sure. If you just played triads on the white keys, you're always going to be playing the C scale. Exactly right. White note composing. If you're in A minor, then yes, the same thing. And I think that the power and the compelling exuberance and sincerity of this score made that kind of chord deployment into a go-to sound for pop epicness. Yeah, I think that's right. I had not used the word pop in describing to myself what the sound was because you do hear all of those sounds in something like Roja, Ben-Hur, King of Kings, whatever, these 50s biblical movies. I did have an awareness going through this score of Polidurus's comfort zone or maybe it's a deliberate choice to limit himself to stay in that modal white key sound for longer and kind of swim around back and forth for longer without some kind of chromatic surprise than I would have expected from a classic film score like Roja's score. Yeah, exactly. He indulges this much more than Roja would. Yeah, and it also felt a little more aimless, dare I say. Like, each of those chords has a meaning to me, you know? E minor, oh, but then G, and then ah, D. But A minor, <laughs> like, oh, and C. <laughs> Like, and each of these is a place in a little map of feeling, but it's like a map that says, you know, the great ocean is this way and the vast desert is this way, but it's actually a small map. Like each thing it does says this is big and powerful, but you, you never really learn a new thing. It's just the standard things. And in the middle of this movie, when Conan, uh, I don't even remember which sequence because they're all kind of the same. He leaves to go horse ride across from left to right, across a grand yeah. landscape. I think this is a nice cue. I think this is a really good gelling of the epic scope with his you know, hero's journey. I did think during some of these, where is he going and what's is something new happening or no, just the same thing is happening? And then like, oh, right, nothing is happening. It's just the landscape in which we kind of swirl around and bounce from one of these to another was the sort of interchangeability of each of these revelatory chord changes that they're not revelations <laughs> it's just the feeling of sort of the mystique of change and growth and journey without any particular change mm -hmm. or growth or journey right because you can go up and down these chords as long as you like and each time you know like we might have gone down from a to f 20 times but the next time is it still a legitimate emotional move yes of course it's still true yeah So, so Polidor is making such hay out of how true it is every time. I really do believe is behind, yeah, this feeling of pop epicness and my evidence. What could be a better evidence for what is pop epic in culture than musical themes for TV sports? 
the TV sports themes in the 90s, which I like to think of myself as a connoisseur of, American ones anyway, they all sound like this. They all sound exactly like this. <laughs> Here's the 90s version of the NFL on CBS. And even the non-sports fans among you, I bet you recognize this music because it was on in the background over Christmas or whatever. You know, it's just, this was inescapable. It was everywhere. Yeah, I can't say that I recognize it because I just feel like, oh, the thing is happening. Sure. <laughs> well, this in particular is memorable to me. And then, you know, this is not meant to be shade on any of this stuff at all. I really do love this stuff. And what I think is probably my favorite all-time TV sports theme is NBA on NBC, which was written by John Tesh. <laughs> it's a piece of music called Round Ball Rock. Well, I know this one. Oh, I love this so much. And it's just doing exactly the thing that we were describing, up and down the keyboard with just chord, 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 in a row, in a row, in a row. And I love it. All right. Well, that has the full rock. You know, that is pop because of the rhythm section. I mean, listen to this bit towards the end of NBA on NBC. And then listen to this spot where um, Conan and his buddy are, you know, arriving at some ancient city. There it is. <laughs> and this kind of stuff has a longer legacy. Let me play this little snippet of NFL and CBS again. And now listen to the second half of the fellowship theme from Howard Shore's scores for The Lord of the Rings. Ah, yes, well. Yes, well. <laughs> when I first went to see Lord of the Rings in the theater, I was like, okay, when's kickoff? Well, I was going to say, having seen Conan and really heard the score all the way through now, I thought, oh, well, Peter Jackson clearly came this way yeah. in terms of what fantasy should sound like. I should save it for when we eventually actually do an episode about the Lord of the Rings scores by Howard Shore, but I will say when I first saw those movies, always I've felt like those scores are a little simpler and blockier in their mm -hmm. harmonic language than yeah. feels right to me for the material because the material is all about all of this detail work, Tolkien's fascination with every little detail that represents a deep historical knowledge of this or that, and it's not a big pop song. And when I saw this movie, I thought, now I kind of get why they thought that was the way to go. This, Conan, this is the right object for that. This actually suits it because I'm not sure there are six chords worth of thought in this movie, but <laughs> certainly six chords covers it, you know? And that had a really cool transporting feeling of taking you deep into the point of fantasy, those white key chords. Whereas Howard Shore, yeah, the Fellowship theme sounds like these string moments. His orc music sounds like the Anvil of Krom. Sure. Another thing that notoriously sounds like the Anvil of Krom is Jerry Goldsmith wrote sort of a sound-alike for the opening of Total Recall, apparently because he was told to emulate it. But, debatably, the Anvil of Krom in the first place resembles Jerry Goldsmith's earlier main title for Capricorn One.
Yeah, so are you including the love theme in your assessment of the music having a pop sound? Yes and no. I mean, yeah, it has some similar chord moves in it, but it's not the kind of thing that I'm talking about that sounds like TV sports theme. I like this love theme melody. Every time I heard it, I thought, oh, this sounds like the middle phrase of the Spartacus love theme. <laughs> well, it's definitely not as good a love theme as the Spartacus love theme. A lot of the themes in this movie, like I said, people will say that it's a theme-based movie, but I more felt like it was just different ways of drawing me into that space. Yeah, I didn't really feel the thematic associations. Again, if this were a theme-based movie, then we would have heard a theme playing when Arnold sees the snake symbol and has a flashback to when he saw it earlier. Because that's an important thing to put a theme to, the mystical backstory. And there would have been a theme for the various mystical forces. Oh yeah, that's something that really struck me, that there's not mystical music. Yeah, there's not mystical music. There's maybe two bars of kind of snakes or spooky music at one point. Literally one phrase in the whole movie. There's a nice little interlude when the ghost version of Sandal Bergman shows up to help him in the fight at the end. That has a kind of a mystical, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi feel for a moment. Yeah, I saw someone saying that that's a very fleeting allusion to Wagner's Parsifal, which uh, I was not able to convince myself of. But, I mean, speaking of Obi-Wan Kenobi, and this is another point that I'm borrowing from my friend Michael, it is a little interesting how much this is an odd mirror of Star Wars, right? Milius was buddies with Lucas at film school, and he went on to make his own movie about... You know, there's a hero's journey with a trio of these young, unheard of actors on location. They, you know, have to sneak into a bad guy's lair. And then there's like some vaguely Eastern mystical themed wizard type person helping them. Not to mention, of course, uh, you know, that James Earl Jones, of course, is the bad guy. Mm -hmm. But instead of taking down a military empire, they take down uh, some commie hippies. Yeah, but then it doesn't have exactly that sense of mystical importance behind things. That is the crux of Star Wars and the crux of the music in Star Wars. Has anybody ever uh, paid any attention or spoken about the music in Star Wars? Somebody should do a podcast episode about that, I feel like. Uh, Many other people already have, John, so we're off the hook. Phew. Yeah, I actually thought it was... Pretty remarkable, the scene where he goes into like a cave that's a crypt or something. It's a mysterious underground, you know, Tomb Raider room and pulls a sword from a crumbling skeleton who then sort of seems to magically after death know that his sword was taken and the bones tumble in a spookily uncanny way. This would be in any other movie played with eerie magical effects Mm -hmm. and the sense that something scary and unearthly and mysterious you know string harmonics and squeaks and you know the celeste because it's magical all of this stuff yeah he sure enough is doing these big broad parallel chords up ski down skis round we go skis with these chords the approach more or less here was that it was playing the deep sanctity Hmm. it's religious string chords with no hint that what's going on here is any less valid than a real religion Mm -hmm. 
it doesn't try to awe you. It just is in a state of awe. It does not condescend to the material to the degree of trying to reinforce its magicalness. It's just like actually going to this church, glorifying what this church of Conan glorifies. I suspect that that's why people all over the internet say, this is the greatest score, this is the greatest composition in human history, (laughs) because it expresses belief in the materials at a level that's so complete that it, it actually, you know, yeah, like you say, leaves the movie hanging in some places. your point of it not really being interested in the mysticism why didn't we get any music for the ghost attack yeah animated ghost scene those ghosts are pretty stacked i guess that's what menacing arnold requires but why why is there no music here uh my answer is because that's an event in the movie the music notices events when it feels like it but that's not it's really its priority (laughs) i guess so I was on board with this music in a lot of places, but I was also aware of it being on a different page for me and coming at the movie with different ideas of what it was important to do than certainly than I had. Look, I'm pleased with myself that I didn't get too caught up in criticizing, yeah, the little things that don't work, little editing infelicities, little moments when the, you know, arrival moment in the music doesn't fall on the thing that I thought, you know, should be the sync point. There's plenty of those. But I am willing to go along with, like you said, okay, but it doesn't matter. Every time you propose scoring things some, you know, the correct way, quote unquote, yeah, I think, oh, but you saw that it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger and he can just barely say his lines <laughs> and like... So this is a different school of thought. Either try to really get in there and help him or just embrace that you're not going to get to see a well-put-together movie. I was imagining that this is like... You're holding this fantasy in your head before the movie even exists. And then the movie kind of comes up to meet the fantasy and remind you of it. And I think for the people who really actively share that fantasy, this movie is like deeply satisfying because you hear kindred spirits talking about a thing. Yes, that thing. Putting on a show and trying to get the you know, stagecraft right and, and bring down the lights at this time and then bring them up at this time and then the music will turn around this corner. The more polish you put into that stuff, the more risk there is of feeling like, well, some professionals put on a show, but they weren't really talking to me. Like, I wouldn't invite uh-huh. them to our D&D session. I felt okay. like I was, like, in people's bedrooms watching this movie. I felt like I was sort of, like, <laughs> in a personal space. That's why I said all that stuff about wanting to be respectful at the beginning. I feel like, sure, this matters to you. I get it. Like, I I also think you should watch other movies and listen to some other music. (laughs) But, but sure. I don't think we should end this show without having at least said the words Carmina Burana. It's weird that we haven't yet. Fair point. Yeah. Carmina Burana. There. I did it. Yeah. When we said what the points of reference were for this, that's a major oversight. Yes, it sounds like biblical epics, and yeah, it sounds like uh, a couple of references to whatever writer's brain holes, whatever we called out, but it sounds like Carmina Burana throughout. When they go in the cannibal's kitchen, it's 
basically borrows a bass line from O Fortuna, the most famous part of Carmina Burana. Right, right, right. Even the meter change that we talked about. Mm-hmm. There's similar meter changes in Carmina Burana. Yeah, well, I think that Milius did, in fact, use Carmina Burana as a temp and specifically proposed that to Polidurus as something to emulate. Yeah, I read that he wanted to actually use it in the movie, but then it got used in the movie Excalibur, which came out enough before this that they realized they couldn't do it. I also read that Milius had in his temp Prokofiev. Oh, yeah. You can hear that, too. Yeah, you can. And, you know, the horseback raid at the beginning of the movie that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, exactly. That sounds like Lieutenant Akijay. Oh, I thought it sounds like the Battle on the Ice in Alexander Nevsky. It sounds like both Alexander Nevsky, yes. That also gives this score a feeling of being something special because by 1982, the really classical approach to scoring, which was still thinking a little bit in terms of an opera stage, and as you said, still thinking that if it wanted to play a circle of fifths for musical reasons, the movie would stand aside and let it do that. (laughs) It was very rare. Yeah, that's right. People weren't taking Prokofiev as a model at that point, and it gives a distinction to this movie. It really does. It gives a distinction that, like, this has classical importance. This has classical legitimacy to it because the music has this slightly detached and self-involved kind of tone that isn't paying super close attention to the action. It trusts that the action will flow to fill whatever form it lays in front of it. Yeah, that's right. And I think people felt empowered by that trust. So they got to enjoy something that was Yeah, 24 French horn fire hose of awesomeness at the same time as it has this little whiff of classical legitimacy. I can imagine, I can imagine that if I were not coming to this as a jaded adult, maybe I too could really have wound up in its thrall. I was a little bit in its thrall as it was. Yes, I was more in its thrall than I ever imagined I would be about such a movie as this. Also, Thrall sounds like a character in the movie. Yeah. Felsa is a a name you don't hear very often, but uh, maybe it'll come back into fashion. (laughs) You know, at the end of the movie, he gives a little speech to Conan right before he kills him, trying to tell him why he shouldn't kill him, I guess, in which he tells him, counterfactually in this case, but in which he tells him that I am your father. That's right. Who now is your father if it is not me? Like, that's his solution to everything, this guy. (laughs) Yeah, that's his get-out-of-jail-free. Have we made enough jokes about this movie? I feel like (laughs) we let it off easy. It's weird, right? No one did an Arnold impression. It's it's crazy how irresponsible we are. I did try to transcribe the ADR fight sounds that are, you know, laid in <laughs> the Austrian, like, Kermit the Frog throat kind of thing that he goes, <laughs> I've written it down here. A-A-A-G-H-A-W-W-A-G and so on. 
This was kind of a moment of realization for me that Arnold Schwarzenegger's voice is funny well beyond having an Austrian accent. And when people do parodies of him and make him sound like a cartoon character, that's for real. <laughs> I played like three times in a row this sound when he falls into the cave from running from the wolves. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. That, that That's all from the same ADR session, I think. Yeah, and boy, <laughs> on the commentary track. I know he is a skilled politician and a, a thoughtful and accomplished guy. And, you know, as I said during the Terminator episode, I just kind of like watching him on screen. He's an appealing screen presence. Absolutely. I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, he definitely got better as an actor from here. But even before then. On the commentary track, he <laughs> he's saying stuff like... Oh, there's the sword. Oh, he got the sword. <laughs> oh, but then he fell down. Oh, they got away. He just is like watching the movie and noticing the things that happen. So skull. Dead people. That is a skull. And then uh, one of the skeletons started moving. Yeah, that's the, that's the spirit of the general. And Milius sounds not exactly like John Goodman, but here's Milius talking about... How he sees Conan, he's like, he says that Conan he's, is uh, he's actually really he's, an intellectual. He's thinking again because he, Conan is an intellectual. Conan's a, a man of of deep philosophies and and, and deep you know powerful emotions. He's not a superhero. He's he's always thinking. <laughs> he sure is always staring quietly. Yeah. Did you realize that the first words that the character speaks in the movie, he's been on screen the whole time as a kid, and then he turns into Arnold. Right, that line people quote, that's his first line. 24 minutes into the movie is his first time he opens his mouth. What is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of the women. And you know that line that people like to say. I didn't know that that is a paraphrase of a quote, an actual quote from Genghis Khan. Why not? That's right. Why not? When he says that, we're supposed to think, oh, he's uh, he's a little too barbaric, right? This isn't a good thing. But boy, people people think that's a great, a great thing. Yeah, he's just saying that to please... Like, to appease his warlord masters. Who are made up to look exactly like Genghis Khan. Right. And then he goes to learn his true self. So, yeah. Conan doesn't believe that the greatest thing in life is to hear the lamentation of the women. Stop attributing that to him. <laughs> he just wanted the people he was in the room with to like him. That's why he said that. That's right. He's a really very thoughtful guy. However, he does punch a camel in the face of his own volition. Yeah, he's drunk then, and I think he just walked past a guy who's just casually in frame having his way with a llama or something. Like, that's just in the movie. Yeah. John, I have to thank you for pointing that out to me. I, I did not notice it. As, like I said, a childlike viewer of the movie, but now my eyes have been opened. The camera just pans across. Oh, and there that is happening to a llama. Okay. Yeah. And I think Arnold says something like, can you believe that? Yeah, I couldn't. And I guess he, I, I understand why he was moved to punch something having to do with it. I think he got the wrong thing to punch, though. Did you see the thing where Polidurus was saying that when he was figuring this out on the piano, his nine-year-old daughter came in playing recorder and played the counter melody and he put it into the music? Uh, no, I didn't see that. That's really good. Yeah, he said that he was fooling around and then she just wandered in and started playing this da 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 and he sort of as like a gift to his daughter he gave it to eight horns he said at the end of the queue and had her at the session and he said look honey i put in the thing that you played 
he said, she said, you didn't get it right. <laughs> so I don't know what she actually played. But Well, she was disappointed that she only got eight horns instead of 24. Yeah, well, it is disappointing, yeah. So I, was, I was about to say a closing statement. Yeah, do it. Close already. Yeah, I think my closing statement on this one is it was rewarding for me to be put in touch with sort of the base level of my excitement about movies and music going together. As a fan of movie music, to watch this movie and feel that I was watching a movie made sort of out of a love of movie music. Like that mm. is the driving principle behind everything going on is the way that music in a movie can, all the stuff we've said in the past, generalize and put you in touch with the underlying myth and any other attempts we've made at kind of a big statement this is it there's nothing else happening here except for that (laughs) and it does that as we just said by emulating musical models that were pretty far out of general practice by this point because they were so classical and so assertive about form and to combine that with pulpiest of pulp fantasy the most psychologically unprocessed (laughs) fantasy drives feels really potent and noteworthy and memorable and so i understand why people hold this up and say it's one of the great film scores in those senses it is i also feel like the people who say it's one of the great compositions it's one of the great albums of film music it's you know it's an amazing achievement of music uh i feel like it's a kind of simplified and inflated imitation of things, familiar things from the past, that doesn't hold a lot of mystery or interest for me separated from the movie because then I just hear the references and the tradition into which it falls. But combined with the movie, it felt like a treat. Even though I, I think, have a shade more skepticism about this whole enterprise, about the movie and about the music than you do, I am glad to hear that you had that experience and that you had that reaction to it. And I would like to endeavor to have that be instructive to me because it was my instinct to nitpick about some of the ways that I did not feel that the music gelled with the movie. You know, like put the downbeat on the moment when the sword, you know, makes contact with the person instead of when the head falls off. You know, like, why, why'd you arrive at that court on that nothing shot? Save it for that shot. I was doing that the whole movie long when I wasn't wondering why is this source music playing through this action sequence and stuff like that. But behind all of that, I still was aware of being compelled by this, yes, yeah, sincerity and true untrammeled fantasy i think that your willingness to be open to that is the response that it should by rights have and i uh, i take it to heart i i did at some point in this episode say this movie is super super dumb right <laughs> i not not in so many words so it's good that we got that on tape here john what would you say is the riddle of steel okay the riddle is what do you think the word riddle means? <laughs> yes. His father says something like, you must know the riddle of steel. He also says, like, they forgot the riddle of steel on the field, and then people got it. I think he's saying that, you know, like, uh, Prometheus taking fire from the gods, we have taken steel from the gods. No, but he says they took the riddle. Well, in that case, I thought he was just saying steel itself is a riddle, but then, yeah, uh... <laughs> Okay, well, I think that's a good note to end on, that, yeah, this is 
really convincing music that combines with this movie in a way that makes you feel the big, big feelings and celebrate it for that. And oh, by the way, it's pretty, pretty dumb. I mean, I don't want to watch this movie ever again. <laughs> let's, let's be clear. <laughs> well, do you want to watch the sequel from two years later, Conan the Destroyer? Do I want to? Um, all right, fine. <laughs> I mean, maybe while we're here, we should just expose ourselves to all of the Conan that's out there. We're not going to be passing this way again, so all right, let's just do it. Let's just get it over with. All right, you want to watch it right now? Uh, sure. In radio time, let's go. Let's go watch. All right. Well, yep. we uh, we just did that. We just watched that movie. And uh, hey, guess what? We uh, we recorded a bonus episode of us talking about it. I bet maybe you did guess what. Yes, we've been making bonus content for the Patreon. And this time it seemed clear that it should be about Conan the Destroyer. It's not a whole episode, but it's, you know. A minisode. But it was a whole movie. <laughs> So we've watched it and we just recorded it. And despite it being, I think it's fair to say, universally recognized as not as successful a movie as Conan the Barbarian, I think it was good and interesting that we talked about it. And, you know, will I recant all of the annoying points that I've been making this whole episode long? (laughs) Go find out over on Patreon. All right, John, let's lotterize. All right. Yes, it's my turn. Here is the lottery ball machine. There they go. What mystical future is foretold us? What prophecy? Yeah. Blah, blah. Okay, blah, Conan stuff. Okay, yeah, here In the <laughs> scrolls of Skellis, it is written. There you go. Here we go. Oh, maybe while I'm reaching in, it's a good moment to point out that the other thing that you get to do in addition to listening to our bonus content, if you're a patron, is that you get to vote on what balls make it into the lottery ball machine. There's some interesting stuff in there this time, and you're going to want to exert your influence over what our choices get to be. You think this is the moment to say that? Listen to this music. Just draw the ball. I mean, hey, you know, just having the music play in the air, you know, just keeping the feeling aloft. It's all about the feeling, Andy. Stop, stop. Just do the thing. Listen. (laughs) You have to. Okay, okay. Here we go. I've got a ball, and that ball tells me Mm -hmm. that on next episode... We will be talking about... Uh I'm genuinely on the edge of my seat about this one. I've been wondering for a while what it's going to be. We will be talking about the 1948 score by British classical composer Rafe Vaughn Williams to Scott of the Antarctic. Wow. Cool. Yay. (laughs) I'm excited about this. Yeah. I knew it was in there, and I thought, that'll be a wild trip to somewhere else entirely, the Antarctic. Everything about this is a change of pace that is welcome for me. I'll admit, I have never really heard of this movie, <laughs> let alone seen it or anything, but it is fascinating in that it is scored by real, you know, legit classical composer Rafe Fon Williams. <laughs> He's so legit, his name is spelled Ralph, but it's pronounced Rafe. The silent L is for legit. <laughs> yeah, Will We'll see about the movie, but what I know is that this score is literally a symphony. So that'll be cool. Yeah, this is the kind of thing that we haven't talked about in a while. 
even if you think, what, I've never heard of that, this is going to be fun for us to do, and, and I think it's going to be a, a fun show. Thank you to everyone on Patreon who voted for this and for other things. I couldn't believe how many people voted for this, but they did. That's they... part of the fun of it, is that the patrons surprise us, you know. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, get in there and surprise us. That's right, yes. If you want to support the show, you can sign up on Patreon. If you want to support it more generally, tell friends about it, to leave a review on podcast app, and check in with us on Twitter, if you for some reason still like Twitter, <laughs> at Score Settlers. <laughs> I, I don't argue with casting aspersions on Twitter, and yet, you know, there it is. It's easy way to, you know, like, I, I didn't, I, I just felt like we should have a Twitter account for the show. Like, it, was, it seemed normal when we did it, right? Come on. So many years ago, it did seem normal. I think In the time after the oceans drank Atlantis. <laughs> the oceans drank Atlantis? Well, what, what does that even mean, Andy? <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a little confused. It's a little confused about what does the drinking. Yeah, what does the word drink actually describe happening, and by whom? Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, thanks a lot for listening. And uh, is there a, is there a do you say something like may crom be with you? Is there is there a crom? Uh, is there a well wish with crom in it? Yes, and so say we crom. <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time in the Antarctic. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>